0: Hey, I am here with Robin Hansen. Robin, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So you wrote this phenomenal book that I came across called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And after I read this book, I feel like now I'm seeing the whole world through this lens of signaling that I didn't see before. And it's really useful and interesting. It kind of reminds me of Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, but it actually seems broader and maybe more expansive, like it includes things like prestige and dominance, which I find really useful. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what are the real reasons that drive what people do? Well, first, I should mention my co-author.
1: It's not just my book. Right, right. Co-author, Kevin Simler, an ex- excellent co-author. I'm very much glad that we were able to do that together. And. uh many kinds of hidden motives exist our book focuses on one you know main set of them but uh, there are a lot of different sources of hidden motives but the key idea is that people aren't fully aware of why they do things Mm. and this is a key explanation for many puzzles so mostly social scientists and psychologists take people at their word for why they do things now, sometimes we have a special reasons to be suspicious, especially of rivals uh, or other people that, you know, we feel as enemies are on the other side, but um, people on our side or people like us, or when basically we think everybody follows the same motive, we're not, we're kind of gullible. And when people say they have a motive, we just usually just assume that and go along with that. And my claim here would be that that's one of the main ways that social science goes wrong. Right. So one of the main ways we can do better in understanding human behavior is just back off from this easy, familiar assumption that people are doing things for the reasons that they say they are and entertaining other possibilities.
0: Yeah, and I I love how you talk about the evolutionary reasons behind that, where it's not like we evolved to have full truth and transparency. We evolved to really thrive within a social environment. So sometimes hiding the motives, our own motives from ourselves actually enables us to better survive because if we can fool ourselves into only having really positive motives, then it's so much easier for others to believe the same thing.
1: Right. It's, it's, we present ourselves as if we were the king or president of our mind. Yeah. Uh, You know, overseeing many minions underneath who uh, we don't notice most of them, but still anyone, any one of them we could command to do what we wanted. If only we would bother. And it's more helpful to think of ourselves as the press secretaries of our mind. The conscious mind, at least the you that's talking, and the the thoughts in the you that's thinking, that's the press secretary. And its job isn't to know what's actually going on or to actually decide what happens. Its job is to present a good image of that to the outside world. Now, in some sense, it's trying to present a positive image, but I would say it's more precisely trying to defend against accusations. So humans have norms and we accuse each other of norm violations. And I'd say more precisely, more commonly, what your press secretary is trying to do is evade accusations. So So for example, um, one of our chapters in the book that will most surprise people is about medicine. And the usual motives that people say about medicine is that they are trying to get healthy or trying to help other people get healthy. And that medicine is about health. And we say medicine is more about showing that you care. And you might think, well, isn't that a pretty positive motive? You might wonder, why would anyone be trying to be hide the motive that they're trying to show that they care about people?
0: Yeah, and there's that one really uh, striking example of the king who the doctors will do everything possible to help him, even such as digging up a dead person who died a violent death and you know, putting his bones in some elixir and giving it to the king. And it's all like this show of, oh, I, we're gonna spare no expense in trying to help you. Whereas maybe if you just gave him some inexpensive palliative care, he'd actually have better quality of life. Right, but then
1: you wouldn't have been trying so hard and showing right. how hard you were willing to try. But still, it, you might say, this is a case that shows it's not about just good looking motives, because you might think trying to show that you care would be a relatively good looking motive. But even so, this effort we do to sort of just do things for people, even if they aren't very effective, is not something we want to admit to because it would seem to violate some norms. And so we'd rather pretend to just you know, be doing it for the health benefits rather than for the showing that we care benefits.
0: Yeah. No. What do you think, you know, given what we know about that pattern, what do you think the right approach is for healthcare? Obviously right now the US is grappling with whether or not we're gonna offer healthcare to everyone and other European countries well, offer
1: it. So, so there's the key question of what constraints you include in the question. So this is, this is the issue about policy questions. If you were just you know, an alien who showed up on, in the sky with fastest weapons could force everyone to do what you wanted, your policy answers might be different than if you were, say, a politician who needs to get reelected and you need your policy recommendations to be one the public will support. (laughs) And that makes all the difference in what policies you recommend. So if I were just this powerful alien who are trying to help humans, I might try to prevent them from subsidizing medicine because they're mostly wasting their resources in this extra medicine they're spending money on but of course no politician is going to get elected on that platform and i actually have a proposal uh, for ways to buy health instead of medicine i would merge health and life insurance so that uh the the entity that you were who was you know arranging for your medical care was also one who would lose a lot of money if you died I merge in some disability insurance and some pain insurance and then I crank up the amounts of those things to the level where you now believe that this organization internalizes your harm. That is, if you die or get in pain or disabled, they will suffer as much as you would. And so they will make the correct trade-offs between spending money to prevent or avoid harm versus the cost of that prevention. However, that process doesn't do a very good job of showing that you care. Uh, I mean, you'd have to have other people buy it for you, and then maybe it would work better. But of course, we're also very conformist when we sh- when we are giving gifts. So gifts in general are given for the approval of an audience. Uh, that is, you want this audience to see and approve of the gift. And so that pressures us typically to give relatively conformist gifts, to give gifts that this audience believes would be effective, or at least believes that other people believe or would, would say was effective or useful, and pushes us away from being innovative or idiosyncratic in our gifts.
0: Yeah, and it also seems like maybe a lot has changed since the pandemic started in particular. For instance, it's hard to have the body language type of signaling that you discuss in the book when all you're communicating through is Zoom calls. So I'm curious, like in your own experience, how have you seen people's signaling behavior change since the pandemic began?
1: Well, first of all, you might say that certainly contexts and mediums vary in their bandwidth, and so they vary in how many different signals one can send simultaneously and, and how clearly, but almost all of them have a lot of signaling. I mean, even in, you know, 280 character tweets, there's a lot of signaling, as you might even notice. So it's more about what you signal how and which which dimensions become easier and more salient than about whether there is signaling or not. It's signaling all the way down everywhere, basically.
0: So do you think that people are getting more attuned to signals? Because I see this incredible subtlety to the signaling that goes on in Twitter. For instance, like if you've ever heard of the account VC brags or VCs congratulating themselves, that whole account is basically showing people signaling for what it is.
1: I think if you go back and read people's snipey comments at each other from thousands of years ago, you will see that people were well aware of bragging and signaling all through history. It's just a thing people have known about for a very long time. But interestingly, it's the sort of thing that young people start out relatively ignorant of. And have to learn about over their lifespan and that's a puzzle because you might say i mean it's part of the larger puzzle why do we humans have to consistently relearn the same things over our lifespan things that people already knew in the past you might think evolution would just endow us with the basic knowledge at the beginning of our lives of things that people have just always known or that we could just believe older people and then early in life they would start to tell us a bunch of things and we would nod and say okay and believe them and then we would quickly learn all these things but that's not how it plays out so the interesting phenomenon is there are something it takes a half a lifetime or a lifetime to learn that people in previous generations after a lifetime they had already learned it going back thousands of years so signaling and showing off is definitely one of those sorts of things uh, you know so for example there's a famous quote by I think it was Carnegie who said you know, for everything people do, there are two reasons, the reason they give and the real reason. And you know, that, that sort of snipey comment just goes all the way back. You can look at La Rochefeld, who's a famous French writer from many centuries ago, and he has all sorts of insightful quips about people's behavior that embodies a lot of insight about common tendencies toward hypocrisy and signaling.
0: Yeah, it is interesting how it does seem like most people are ignorant about signaling. And I love your example of conversation and how it's not really about just a transfer of information in a transactional sense. It's really about showing all the cool tools you have in your knowledge backpack so that someone wants to have you as an ally because, wow, look at all those amazing tools you have. And I love that because it makes sense given that oftentimes in conversation, someone wants to speak more than someone else. And why would that be the case if it was just a pure transactional information exchange?
1: Right. Now, I mean, in some sense, people are split that, say, when you're older, you kind of know that a lot of people are showing off in conversation, but you may not be as aware of that about yourself. Mm. So, uh, I mean, you know, the, the simple step that people often fail to make is to apply the theories they apply to everybody else to explain everybody else's behavior and to apply that to themselves to think because they'll usually still think of their own conversation and the things they say is sincere and helpful and sharing information. But their rivals or other people they're more willing to be suspicious of, they will be more quick to infer that those people are just trying to show off.
0: Well, I'm curious then to, to hear how you would see the progression of someone's life as they understand signaling, because when you're a little kid or a baby, You have no sense of any of this stuff. It's just like you are one with the environment. You don't even think of yourself as an entity. Like there's that famous example of if you ask a kid how many people are in the room, they say one, two, three. They don't
1: actually count themselves. So from the highest level, what we it's very clear is that humans and most animals are endowed very early in life with a lot of expectations about what their world's going to be like that are, in fact, roughly correct. So evolution basically tries to endow young animals with as much as it can tell them about what their world's going to be like. And then they need to learn the rest uh, in through experience. And of course, it also endows them with a tendency to listen to certain sort of authorities and accept. So people, humans don't know their language. They, they know that they will probably learn a language and to be ready to learn a language, but they don't know which language, but they also know who to listen to and what to pay attention to in order to learn a language quickly. So we're all ready to learn a lot of things when we're young, and then the main things we have to learn are the things that evolution didn't embody us. So from that point of view, it's puzzling that evolution didn't just embody us (laughs) with this knowledge that people signal a lot, and I would say the larger pattern is that evolution has made young animals and young humans relatively idealistic and non-cynical. And so that's one of the main things you learn with over your life is is a bit more cynicism. But of course, it's a consistent thing everybody's learning through all their lives is a bit more cynicism. And the question is, well, why not just endow you at the beginning? And I think the answer comes from, well, what do cynical children look like? And how do people feel about cynical children? And I think the image is relatively negative. I mean, a cynical 70-year-old is pretty okay They don't seem out of place. They don't seem, especially somebody you'd want to avoid, but a cynical child seems more problematic. And and the way I'd I'd explain it is to say, well, we're basically, when we're young, we're trying to form alliances, which we, we don't have very many alliances or associations. And when you're young, you're forming those things. That's one of the main things you're doing when you're young is you're showing yourself to be the sort of person other people might want to ally with. They might want to be associated with, and then... Uh, Later on, you have your main associations that you're collecting in your life, and then you use those associations. So I think in general, before you form relationships, you want to seem to be a great relationship partner. So that means you want to project this image that you have ideals about relationships, and you believe in those ideals, and you intend to follow those ideals. And later on, once you have your relationships, you can be more cynical and strategic about whether you do, in fact, follow relationship ideals. So for example, young people are known for being especially romantic. They, you know, when they have a romantic relationship, they are over the top in their beliefs about how long it will last or how intensely they love it or how great their partner is. And with after what a relationship is formed, of course, people stay together, but they often lower their expectations about the partner relative to these crazy highs at the beginning of a relationship. But you might say, well, that makes sense. Because early on, you're sort of bidding with other people to show just how, how idealistic you are and what a great relationship partner you would be. And part of that bidding is to show that you would stick with the relationship and you would have high hopes for it and you would have high ideals that you would try to achieve. And, you know, later on in a life, people more going to do the, you know, these boots are made for walking if you don't treat me while well, I'm out of here. And they're going to more exaggerate their willingness to leave and to bail because that's what's more strategically in their interest. But before you have the relationship, that's not the image you want to project.
0: Right. And, and why is it that some people or kids are drawn more to dominance hierarchies and others are more drawn to
1: prestige? So there are these two concepts of status and they are conceptually relatively distinct and even have some distinct markers. Um, one is approved and the other is disapproved. It's the main difference between them among our forager ancestors. Uh, you know, so we come from traditions of other primates and other mammals, which had dominance hierarchies, and dominance hierarchies are very simple things. There's a po- more powerful, and less powerful, and, you know, if there's a pecking order when two chickens might fight, and the one that would win the pecks would be the one who's at the top of the pecking order, and that's a simple thing that most, that a great many animal species produces, these hierarchies of dominance, um, and humans emphasized that they didn't want people to be dominant and that they were going to resist dominance and they were going to fight dominance. And that's one of our key human norms is to disapprove of dominance and to resist it, even though we still have strong tendencies and inclinations in that direction and strong skills. But that's one of the main sort of human differences between, you know, human species and other species that we were just really going to be against dominance and try to resist it. And in part we replaced or augmented dominance with prestige, which is, Uh, basically it's also better to be high prestigious, but prestige is not through the channels of fighting or having more resources or making threats. Prestige is more through the channel of being impressive. So uh, we're allowed to like prestige and we're allowed to admire prestige and to aspire to prestige. And unfortunately that means that what happens is that we often do dominance under the cloak of prestige. So uh, humans, in fact, do have a lot of dominance, and we have a lot of dominance relationships, but we're not supposed to admit that they're dominance, and we tend to try to cover them up as prestige. And that's why, basically, one of the main functions of bosses in our world is to be prestigious. So, you know, bosses go against the ancient human forager norm against dominance. I mean, bosses give orders, and bosses can fire you, right? And bosses are above you. I mean, that's not supposed to be approved, but then we all have bosses. So, how is it that we all get along with them? Well, mostly think we think other people have bosses that are bad, but our boss is okay. It's one way we handle it, but we also how is our boss okay? Well, we think of them as prestigious. They are you know they are work hard and they're good at their job, and they came up from the ranks, and they really were really good at something, and you know they're articulate and they're thoughtful and they're perceptive. And those things, it makes it okay to follow a boss like that because now they are prestigious. And so in, in some sense, that's why we pay so much for managers is because one of their main functions is to be impressive. And there's only so many impressive people and often managers don't actually make that many important decisions. That's sort of their rationale for being there is that they have to make these key decisions and they do make some key decisions, but plausibly. In fact, it's more important that they just be prestigious and they give you an excuse to obey them.
0: So do you see this as like, have we gotten past the dominance times or is it possible
1: that no. humanity could slip we, we, back we, into we, it? We are still, in, we have been in full dominance times for a long time. Dominance is a huge part of human relationships and it continues to be, but it just has this sheepskin cover of prestige, uh, but it's still there. And so in fact, we talk about status moves in the book there. Uh, and those moves, we don't distinguish between prestige and dominance, uh, in that literature and and the place we got it from is a a book by Keith Johnston called Impro, Improv, um, about improvisational, um, theater. And I just recently had a chance to ask him, well, improv status moves, are they prestige or dominance? And he didn't really seem to understand the distinction. (laughs) And it seems like it's mostly dominance. Uh, so in fact... And so that fits with the fact that it's subconscious, right? So the conscious things we do for status are going to be more about prestige, but the unconscious things we do are going to be more about dominance because we're trying to hide the dominance relationships.
0: So, I guess uh, touching on education, like how would you think about the best way to revamp our education system given what we know about signaling? And, you know, since the pandemic started, A lot of people have taken their kids out of public schools. They're starting up their own home pods. The whole landscape is changing. Colleges might be going under. What are your thoughts in the education world? So
1: again, we have to go back to how we frame any policy question in terms of what are the constraints. So most times when people talk about politics or policy, they very much prefer to talk about what if I were king? What if I could just make my preferred thing happen with no backlash, no resistance, uh, no complications. I just get to have my way. That's overwhelmingly how people prefer to talk about policy and politics, which is odd because of course, politics is overwhelmingly about compromise. And so if you thought you actually wanted to have an effect on policy, you would focus a lot on what compromises might be feasible and possible when and how you might suggest to who various sorts of compromises. But people hate to talk about compromise. They mainly want to talk about what I would do if I were king and my preference. And that's plausibly because the, what they're mainly doing is just projecting their values to their associates, and they don't want to project compromise values. They want to project their pure values. Uh, and so that affects our conversation right here because I, I think implicit in the way you ask the question is probably this if we were king, what would we want? And the real, dip, more difficult question is what compromises might we go for? And in particular, if we made a change and other people didn't like it, they might change it back, and they might resist any change we proposed on the basis of uh, other things they're pushing for. So the way I would think about that is to say, let's assume that people still continue to use school for signaling. How could it signal better? <laughs> so you might say, no, 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 school should be about learning the material, and I might say, it maybe it should, but there's not much of a political constituency for that. And in fact, maybe there's not actually that much useful to learn. Maybe people should mainly learn on the job, but there's this demand for showing off your smarts, conformity, conscientiousness somehow. And so how could we do that instead or do it better? So one range of solutions would be to try to make early work experiences more standardized. So part of the problem is say you don't go to school and you go take an internship or you take an early job, you can learn a similar amount of things and you could in some principle way show off many useful characteristics in how you did that job, but it's not graded in a standardized way. And so if you could create a pool of early jobs that were graded in a more standardized way, more comparably, then people might be more tempted to go on a job and produce similar signals to what they might produce in school. So that to me is the challenge, can you get a bunch of employers to design their early jobs in such a way that they can become comparable? That uh, you could get a greater score in one job and that would be comparable to somebody else's greater score in a different job, such that you can then have a resume with a GPA that comes from the jobs that you could advertise and brag about.
0: Right, and and what about the indoctrination aspect of education? Also, you bring up that we kind of have this nomadic hunter gatherer software that's in us when we're born, but then we learn to every day get up at 9 a.m., go to school, work for X amount of hours, come home, do your homework. And we kind of, that becomes our normal routine so that when we become adults, it's easy and normal for us to go to an office that has that same type of system. But now, you know, with work from home and everything, it seems like we're almost going back to more of a nomadic hunter gatherer type of way where maybe it's less of like, uh, you know, you're this one cog in a big machine. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. We're, we're,
1: we're still cogs in big machines. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. Uh, so for, for context, um, because we have the strong aversion to dominance, We also have the strong aversion to modern workplaces. Modern workplaces really are pretty anti-forager, yet here we are, humans who have a forager background and, and attitudes working in modern workplaces. So there's really a strong contradiction there and there's a strong conflict. And so the question is, how does the world ever get foragers to work in modern workplaces? So first of all, realize foragers themselves were pretty autonomous Creatures in terms of their work, they could go hunting or, or gathering, but they—nobody told them where to go hunting or gathering. <laughs> they could go hunting or gathering whenever and wherever they wanted, and they were pretty much, you know, free workers who could choose their time and hours and details of their own. And even farmers have more ranking and dominance, but it's mostly at a distance. So there might, there might be there's a king, and there might be different classes, but most people most of the time are interacting with other people in their same class. And when they interact there, they're not being given orders and they're not being ranked relative to them. So you might be the cobbler, you might be a farmer, you might be a sailor even, but most of your interactions are going to be with other people at your level. And so and they're not going to be telling you what to do. You're going to be, you know, after an apprenticeship, maybe a, a child where you learn how to do things, then you're mostly in charge of what you do and when you do it, et cetera. So the modern workplace is different from farming workplaces. so most farmers and most foragers just would not put up with a modern workplace in fact we see that when you know overlapped with these ancient worlds and we've tried to get people to come into factories and come into modern workplaces to work. they're basically it's not that they can't, but they won't. They just have a very strong moral aversion to doing it. It seems wrong, very wrong to do. So how do we get people to do this? Well, I would say we, habituate routinize people into modern workplace habits with school. And you might say, well, how does school do that? Because, you know, as soon as you put people in school, now they're going to be ranked and dominated and they're going to hate that. So, you know, you're just doing it early And How does that make them, you know, dislike it any less? Well, the key point is in school, you pretend it's about prestige and not about dominance right from the get go so in school there's this teacher who knows more than you and why are you there you're going to learn from the teacher there's things the teacher knows more than you and these topics you're in they're they're highfalutin prestigious topics you're going to talk philosophy and grand organization of the world and literature you know in school you don't deal with grummy grubby topics about how to best clean out a garbage can or something If if the teacher forced you to do that, you might well feel that you were being dominated at school and this was just terrible, but what you learn at school is the habits of doing what you're told in the context of prestigious people and prestigious tasks, so much so that by the time you actually get out of school and go to a regular job, well, now we tell you that this new job is prestigious. And so in fact, it is people who get educated, they tend to get to do the more prestigious tasks. They aren't cleaning out the garbage cans. They're doing something else. Maybe it's boring, but at least it's still supposedly prestigious. And the key point is in school, I mean, you learn to do tasks over a longer timescale. So like in an ordinary traditional workplace, you know, there's the loom and sit down and start doing it. And if you stop doing it, I say, why were you stopped? <laughs> you need my permission to go to the bathroom. And you know, you're under my thumb and doing exactly what I tell you until the end of the workday when you go home. Right. But so that feels do- like you're dominated. So the, the strategy at school is to teach you slowly over time to get an assignment that takes time. And then you pick your, when and how you do the assignment and the assignment is due in a week or two weeks. And now you're in charge of the details of your workday and you learn to take sort of ambiguous instructions and somewhat vague instructions or varied instructions and interpret them and figure out what they mean and how to actually get it done, Uh, which, you know, translates to a modern workplaces where the boss doesn't want to sit over your shoulder all the time and tell you what to do. The boss wants to give you an assignment now and come back in a month and have it be done and that's how we habituate people into that at school. Through I mean, We make it prestigious, and we take away that sort of direct dominance, and we habituate you in a prestigious context until you are doing basically the modern work habits.
0: Right, and is that pretty much the same even at some non-traditional schools where like, let's say like Montessori schools or where there's there's no grades and people really, whatever they're interested in, they can sort of explore those areas? like. I'm wondering if there's like a new type of school, maybe it's not, you know, again, (laughs) like if I were king top down, everyone has to do this. But if there was a scientific experiment and you had two different school systems, do you think that the, the like more non-traditional, basically, whatever you're interested in, you can explore that further with teachers that are good at that thing would be more successful in the modern context?
1: So if you look at, you know, these alternative schools, it is noteworthy that they seem to do less pushing of the habituation, do what you're told line. Right. So at an earlier, age, I mean, that's us even, I mean, in college, of course you get some assignments and you may have, you know, the whole semester to do the assignments. And so you're, you're pretty autonomous. Uh, in younger schools, say in eighth grade or something, you may just get a day's assignment or a week's assignment, or even an hour's assignment. And so there are these alternatives to schools that basically look like they're putting you in the position that you would be in college at an earlier stage. basically. So what happens is, you know, they put you in the school and they say, oh, you have the freedom here to study what you want and to look what you want, just go. But then they will watch you, and of course, if at the end of a month you have done shit, <laughs> then they will up the ante on the pressure on you and or talk to your parents, and your parents may decide to pull you out of there.
0: So it's similar in so, just
1: a little bit more <laughs> subtle, maybe. Well, but basically, at any one school grade, there's a wide range of ability and capability to just to to be on your own and to run your own life and to take your own initiative. And school is set for sort of you know the average or the median or sort of the, even the tenth percentile or something, and it doesn't really take into account that variation very well. So it, it can be better off if the students who are capable of self-motivation. <laughs> Are able to, to sort of split off into a class where they get to do things different, and of course that's part of the idea of, of advanced classes or uh, of, of advanced students having a different sort of schooling system. But you know, have, make no mistake, if you put kids into one of these alternative schools and you say you can do whatever you want, and then you know after six months they've basically played with some frogs and you know built a treehouse or something, and <laughs> and if parents or teachers don't think they actually learn very much interesting or useful you know, there will be a response.
0: Right, right. Now I have one more question about signaling and then I'd like to ask some rapid fire questions of other things you've studied because you've got so so many interesting areas. How important is free information flow? Like you take something like the United States system, free speech, pretty much all information is free. How does that change relative to a civilization like China where information is controlled? Maybe you don't have as much visibility into the signaling that others are doing. Um, What sort of effect does that free information flow have on a civilization
1: and signaling patterns? Well, the most obvious rationale for free information flow would be uh, for adaption and innovation. So just like when we talked about in conversation, the rationale for conversation might be to share information. That would be the larger rationale for free information flow. And no doubt that it does happen. Uh, That is, people in conversation do actually get information from each other, and free information flow in society does actually promote learning and innovation and adaption. Um, You know, the main thing to realize is that from any one person's point of view, this is largely a side effect. This is not the main thing they are trying to do. This is uh, an effect of what they're doing. It could be a welcome and beneficial side effect, but it's not the focus of their attention. So first of all, this means, Our rate of innovation in society is probably vastly lower than it could be if we were actually trying to be innovative and actually trying to share information. Nevertheless, we still may enjoy the benefits and want to achieve them. But it also means when you ask individuals whether they approve of the free information flow, their focus is not going to be on this general innovative benefit of the information sharing around. They're going to be focused on their other priorities and issues they have about information. And so um, that's going to, you know, very much change how they think about such things. So, for example, just an hour ago, I completed a 24-hour poll on Twitter where I had 2,800 people answer a polling question. And the question was this. um, I said, you know, in our world, people show off their uh, health by doing, you know, sports and heavy drinking, or they show off their um, smarts by vocabulary and degrees, or they show off their... Um, their wealth by uh, bank accounts and uh, by by, by, uh, cars and clothes. What if we created metrics of these things and published them such that you could just look up somebody's total wealth or health, how they passed a fitness test or their IQ test, and then people might not have to signal so much those things. They might not have to go so far out of their way to show fancy clothes or cars or something if everybody could just look up their wealth. And at a three to one ratio, people did not like that idea. <laughs> now you might think from the information flow point of view, it would be beneficial. You might say, "Well, since we're all apparently trying really hard to send this information out and to get it from other people, why don't we just try to make that more efficient and just do it officially? And people hate that. And you might so you might say, "But why? Why do people hate that?" Well, obviously, you know they're more focused on their own position in this situation and wondering, How bad, how will they look if there's just this objective measure? They may just like a world in which they could shade it or adjust it or influence how people perceive them by who they said to what about who. And people kind of like the idea that gossip and even politics of various sorts will let them win out over some simple objective thing. So it's also related to like, people don't like the idea of just automatic cameras catching speeders or just automatically police, if they see you violating a rule, just must give you a ticket. They like the idea that police would have discretion and, they, and there would be people involved because they tend to think they personally will benefit from that discretion. And you might think from a general system, don't we just want the speeders to be punished and make sure people don't speed? If that's just what we wanted out of the system, then that would be the simple thing. But no, that's not what we want because we're not focused on the system, we're focused on ourselves and how we are changed by this these various policies. And in particular, how our attitude about it affect other people about it. And so if people around us are horrified by this, well, we wanna be horrified by it. And we, we wanna say, yay, privacy, boo, authoritarian metrics. Um, but of course, you know, these metrics aren't required. Nobody has to look at these metrics. Nobody has to act on them. It's just putting these metrics out there for people to see if they want, but people hate the idea <laughs> that these numbers might sit out there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So it sounds like also, we're going to have to grapple with these questions in the near term with the future, because when we think about giving over control to a self-driving car, for instance, or anything like that, we have a much higher bar that needs to be achieved in order to give over that control. Whereas if a human is making the discernment, we're okay with a pretty right. big margin of error. So right. definitely uh, seems like something we're going to have to address in the future. Well, I'll just make
1: make the comment that Um, A lot of people, of course, see that the world changes, including in technology, and they're eager to make predictions about how that will change society. And part of the problem with that usual process is people just substitute the usual theories about why people do things into that analysis, and that makes it go pretty wrong. So, for example, if you thought that school was just about learning the material, then you might think new methods of helping you learn the material with electronic aids would make a huge difference to education. If you think about If education is mainly about just showing off, it may not make as big a difference. Similarly with medicine, you might think oh, medicines about making you healthier. Look at these new technologies that could look at your health better. Uh, Surely that will be eagerly adopted and and change everything. But if you think medicine is a way to show that you care, you might realize people won't necessarily change how they show that they care just because some new, new gadget shows up. And so
0: analysis
1: of the of how technology will affect society really does need a decent theory of how society works. And if you've got the wrong theory of how society works, a broken, mistaken theory, you're just going to misjudge how technology will affect society.
0: So let's get into some rapid fire questions now. And the first thing I want to ask about is there are some contrarians who believe that rather than technology speeding up at an exponential rate with Moore's law and whatever else, we actually might be experiencing a slowdown in progress. People like Eric Weinstein talk about this and Peter Thiel. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Are we experiencing a slowdown in progress or is it the case that we're making progress every day? And there's so many people working on various things that we are going to see a lot of progress made in the next 10 or 20 years. I'm curious where you fall on that opinion. So, I mean, the largest
1: context is to say over the last century and a half, we've had relatively steady growth in the world. And at a rate that's very different than what it was in the few thousand years before that. So from the the biggest picture point of view, there was this huge jump in growth rates. And then we've got fluctuations around that new growth rate, but pretty steady. So within that fluctuation, you have some fluctuation across time and some fluctuation across the world. And so within that sort of language, I would say, sure, in the last 50 years, we've had less growth than we had before and also less growth than other nations in the world are having so in the richest nations in the last 50 years yes growth has slowed down a bit but that should be put in the context of you know the rest of the world is growing faster and you know we're still pretty near the same rate that we've seen for this last you know two centuries which is enormously different than what it was before so you know that's just context you should keep in mind but yes there is a decline recently in the richest countries and there are some interesting things to say about why
0: Yeah, totally. Now I'm also curious what you would predict is the year by which we will achieve artificial superintelligence—twenty thirty, twenty fifty, 2030, 2050, 2100. I'm curious what your inclinations are about when that will be
1: achieved. So I have this first book called the age of M work, love and life when robots rule the earth. And that's about this scenario where brain emulation show up. But, But the key point is that, um, Brain emulations could show up before superintelligence shows up and it would greatly accelerate the growth rate of the economy. So I think given that that's a scenario that's possible, it makes more sense to talk about the number of doublings of the world economy before things happen rather than the number of years. Now, if we're still in the same regime where the world economy doubles roughly every 15 years, then I might say, and we assume, say, that M's don't happen, then I might think, well, it could be a century, three centuries before a super intelligence would show up. Um, But if M's come before that, then all of a sudden the growth rate enormously accelerates instead of doubling every 15 years, it might be every month, in which case it would almost surely happen within a year or two, right?
0: Right. Now, this kind of gets into my next rapid fire, which is about the simulation hypothesis, which is basically the fact that VR is already pretty uncanny and if we continue to make progress it just seems inevitable that eventually it'll be indistinguishable from reality and by that logic maybe we're already in a simulation so I'm just curious I mean I don't necessarily think this but what would you put the odds from 0% to 100% that we are living in a
1: simulation? No more than a few percent. Yeah. And And, and just mainly because the future probably will have the ability to create simulations and put creatures in the simulations who don't know they're in a simulation, that's probably will happen. But what we've seen so far is when we do analogous things today, like movies and games and books, or where we try to simulate some past society or error or events, we are mostly very interested in relatively recent things. Our interest in the past diminishes quite quickly with its distance in the past much more quickly than did say how the economy or population grew. So that's why I would guess that yes, they will have simulations of their past, but their recent past will be too far, too far back to be of very much interest. So if you look today, there's almost no interest. There are very few uh, movies or stories about foragers, foragers from say more than 100,000 years ago But People are not interested in in simulating. There's no video games. There's no movies. just people do not care about them. But, you know, there was a similar number of them to all the number of people who existed in the farming era, all the number of people who existed in the industrial era, but the relative interest is tiny. Right.
0: Okay, last rapid fire. So you also talk about the Fermi paradox and the great filter, which I'm really interested in as well. And there are many filters that life probably has already gone through and there are many filters we have yet to go through. So looking specifically in the future, what do you believe is going to be the most challenging great filter that we have yet to experience?
1: I guess I tend to think of it more in terms of the, the scenario where we die is probably a scenario where we suffer a number of collapses. And different initial collapses could probably lead to similar later collapses. But basically, to kill us all off, we need to have pretty big collapse. And uh, so, basically, overwhelmingly, the the odds that are not an external event would kill us, it would be an internal event. Somehow, we would fail ourselves. And we would fail ourselves by somehow collapsing, basically losing capacity and ability relative to what we have now or what we will have in the future. And the key idea is like be if you if you are on a stairs, say going down a stairs and you slip on one step, the reason to be wary of that is not because it's that bad to slip on one step. It's because if you slip on one step, you are more likely to slip on the next step after that and start tumbling down the whole stairs. The risk is the tumble down the whole stairs, not the first step. And so it could be a pandemic, it could be a war, it could be some civil war, it could be some great you know, thing, it could be declining fertility, there are a number of things that just could cause us to decline. And then the problem is that that first initial decline could trigger further declines, we could get more defensive, more inward looking, less innovative, uh, more ideological, more, less cooperative, you know, those sorts of things would just build on each other. Uh, because the more bad things that had happened lately, the more we would be scared of new bad things happening soon, and the more less, you know willing we are to be generous or take risks that might, you know. And so that's kind of how I would think about it. And so it makes it hard to say what's the initial thing, and more that the, the risk is just this tendency to keep falling and collapsing after an initial collapse.
0: Yeah, well that, that brings us to the future scenarios. What do you foresee as the worst case scenario, that first slip on the step?
1: Worst case scenario. Uh, Again, it's hard. I mean, obviously, a nuclear war would be a pretty big slip on the step. A nuclear war is still possible. There are still nukes out there, and there are still, you know, noisy systems that could misread things. Uh, So nukes are a real threat. Um, But I also, uh, we have been say reducing our innovation in part because of over regulation and uh you know over uh control of of various innovative activities and that could continue we could squash innovation further and prevent more changes um and that that would have a long-term negative effect you know we could have more i mean basically in the united states for example we've had slowly increasing polarization and um slowly increasing inequality and that's plausibly just the obvious prediction of peace and prosperity. That is, say, before World War One, the world had been and the United States had been peaceful for a long time, and then even then we had slowly increasing inequality and polarization. And then the world wars sort of brought us together, as wars do, and they reduced inequality, as wars do. And since then we've been going the other way. So you know now we're facing this difficult choice: we'll either have a continued peace and prosperity, which then pr- continues to produce inequality, polarization, and Overregulation of various sorts, or we could have another big war, <laughs> clean slate, which has its own risks. So the choice between the two of those, neither of them looks terribly attractive.
0: So let's say we avoid that next World War III, and let's say we're able to reduce the polarization. What are the most important factors in us having that more best-case scenario future?
1: Best-case scenario. I wish I knew, (laughs) Uh, you know, I I don't know. I I know enough to see that there are these problems, but I don't know what can distract us. So for example, I think part of the increasing, say, conflict and and polarization in say the United States is that we've been having peace and prosperity for such a long time. And so we just keep having peace and prosperity and people will feel more comfortable, you know, ignoring external threats and focusing on internal enemies. And that will just continue. you know, you could imagine some new enemy showing up somehow to distract us all, but,
0: right. Well, a lot of uh, people thought the pandemic would be that because it crosses all borders, but it became no. like a hyper-nationalist sort of response rather than this,
1: all of us people, coming together. Again, at some point they saw, oh, this is only going to be so bad and realized, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll muddle through okay. And so that meant they could focus on it as part of their polit- political battles rather than just all pulling together to deal with it. Pandemic is not remotely as bad a problem as a big war would be.
0: Yeah, yeah, especially with the technology we have now. So would you, would you say then, as far as like an existential threat is concerned, it seems hard to believe that many things could wipe out every single person?
1: Well, but that's the, that's, that's the falling down the stairs problem, see? The first step, definitely. I it's very hard to imagine one step that destroys us all. The question is, after that first step, what happens next if there was a world war sure there'd still be lots of people left but then how would they treat each other you know would they cause a panic panic would they cause a pandemic would they you know you know what happens after that yes but basically it does seem hard to kill everyone and so that should give you some reassurance that it may be not terribly likely but even a small chance is a pretty big deal that we should worry about and so you should be thinking like, what is the most likely scenario, even if it's not that likely? And to me, this seems the most likely scenario is some tumbling down the stairs. One thing makes other things, maybe two things happen at once, they make more things more likely, and then how do we respond to that?
0: Yeah, and, and we've also seen that, you know, humans aren't the first species to be on planet Earth. The dinosaurs ruled for millions of years, and before that, there were other species. So. Even if humans die out, there's another chance that life could come and do a better job the next time. So I'm curious, from your perspective, in the most likely scenario, do you think humanity is going to get to the point where we colonize the stars and we've solved all these problems? Most likely scenario.
1: I, I, think, I think it's definitely more likely than not that our descendants will you know, conquer the galaxy and on to the universe. What you might have more doubts about is what, how much will they have in common with you or what you care about? Your descendants will change over time. And so I think you have more scope of worrying about whether you like what they become.
0: Yeah. Interesting.
1: So that's part of the age of M analysis is to show people just how weird and different uh, their descendants might be. People, like, if you think about a Star Trek future or something like that, or a culture novel's future, you're thinking of people who are culturally much like us, except they're in this world of vast technology. But the history of culture doesn't support that very well. Culture has changed enormously over time, and it could change enormously in the future. And I try to show in this Age of M analysis what I plausibly guess culture would be like in that world, and it's pretty different than your culture, and many people don't like it. Many people look at this world I describe and say, no, that's a terrible world. I don't think it's so bad but the fact that other people do think it's so bad should give you a warning about don't easily assume that the future will be preserving your culture or even be culturally something you respect and embrace
0: yeah definitely now i i guess uh you know my final question would just be what are the key takeaways that people listening to this should have and how can people improve their own lives by being more aware of signaling and the elephant
1: in the brain. Well, so uh, I have to admit that our book was not designed as a self-help book, (laughs) and it may not be in your interest to know about it. (laughs) That is, evolution built us to not be aware of these motives. They're hidden for a reason. They could have been shown to us, but were not shown to us. We were built to hide them and not be aware of them. So if evolution is right about you, in its guesses about you then you should not learn this stuff but evolution may have misguessed because your world has changed or you may be unusual so for example you may be nerdy like me and your basic intuitions about how to glide smoothly through the social world aren't very good and maybe you could use some conscious augmentation to help you understand the social world rather than just relying on your bad intuitions or you might be a manager or a salesperson who especially needs to understand the people around you uh even if it comes at the expense of you know looking at ugly things you don't want to see in yourself if you are a social scientist or policy makers it's especially important that you actually understand the world you're in so that your policy recommendations and changes you have a chance of understanding their consequences and what what how, what effects they would have so for you i think it's more an obligation you've taken on yourself the job of trying to understand how various social changes, policies and institutions would change the world. You need to understand what the actual motivations of people are in those institutions to have a chance of understanding how changes might affect things.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much Robin for taking the time. I've enjoyed this book enormously. So props to you and the co-author. And I think the paperback just came out or there was some some new version. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, it's supposed
1: it's basically I think if you order it now yeah, it'll up a few days from
0: now. So it is awesome. That's great. Well, highly we'll recommend, recommend it and, and thank you again. The, best, the present is the future. Our computer is picking- If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hence the scroll to the bottom of the homepage and add your email address next to the button that says enter the void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hence the future. And most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple podcasts. If you haven't done so already, our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.